I'm Jennifer Grayson, and this is the Uncivilized Podcast. Welcome back to the Uncivilized Podcast, where we are reconciling our modern, urban, industrial existence with our innate human need for the natural world. I'm Jennifer Grayson, and I could not be more excited about our guest today, brewer Paul Arney, who is the founder of Wild Ferment Brewery, the Ale Apothecary in Bend, Oregon. Some of you who have been listening throughout this first season know how much I love Bend and how much I love Oregon. We have spent a lot of time there. But another love of mine that some of you may not know about, but which is very much tied into the culture up there in Central Oregon, is beer. I have always loved beer. Well, you know, what I would call real beer, not the natty ice that came out of a keg when I was in high school. Um, But my most recent discovery has been wild fermented beer. Some people call them sour beers, which I owe to my first taste of one of Paul's ale ale apothecary beers when I first went to Bend six years ago. So it was great to finally have the opportunity to virtually sit down with Paul and chat here. My husband actually won the coin toss when we were in Bend last time and got to go to Paul's tasting room. So I was staying home with the girls (laughs) and drinking his beer uh, by myself. That was still great. Um, But so I'm I'm so excited to talk to Paul because the work he is doing so ties into what we're exploring here on the show, unpacking the industrialization of our food system and of exploring not just organic food and real food, but wild food and the food preparation and preservation methods of our ancestors. And so that's why what Paul is doing with the Ale Apothecary is so cool and so different from even what your nearby microbrewery might be doing because he's developed this hyper-local brewery based on the past 10,000 years of our brewing history as humans. He's literally brewing out of a cabin in the middle of the woods, using the 11,000-year-old snow melt from the aquifer on that land, letting the microbes from that region work their magic in an open fermentation process, using materials from the land itself. And I can tell you the taste is like nothing you've ever experienced before. Not surprisingly, Paul is a fascinating guy, and we had such a fun and interesting conversation about the history of beer, the industrialization of beer, and why what he's doing is such an important piece of this bigger movement we all want to be a part of, to reclaim our communities, to reclaim our autonomy, and to make local not just a buzzword, but a way to actually re-envision a new way to structure our society. So, If you're not driving, crack open a beer and enjoy this episode with Paul Arney. Let me know what you think afterward over on Instagram. That's at Jennifer Grayson one. And I will see you next Monday with a new episode. Thanks for listening. I want to start out just by making a small confession, which is. So the first time I actually tried one of your beers uh, about six years ago, the first time we came to Bend, this was before I had really gotten into exploring uh, wild foods and fermented foods and ancestral preparation of food. I, I actually tried one of your beers and I I didn't get it. Um, <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say I didn't like it because now I, I crave your beer. It's like this very distinctive taste that I can't get enough of. But I was just wondering if we could start out by you just explaining, how do you explain what you do to people who really have no idea of this world of what you're doing? Because I didn't get it at first. <laughs> I hope no, you don't hate Jennifer, me for telling you funny. that. That's- it's no, it's perfect. It's a great. It's really a, a a great way to start this because, um, it is probably one of my um, largest challenges. Um, and I can't say that I'm very good at it uh, as far as like how 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 do I talk about it? Um, you know that along with the price point uh, are probably two of my uh, most difficult conversations. Um, it's always easier when we have people in our brewery because it's you know it's just so different than. Um, contemporary, uh, you know, factory factory style brewing um, that uh, I don't <laughs> I don't need to explain. It's kind of just obvious. But um, I guess in a nutshell, uh, my um, my career has been in um, in making beer. Like the first career job I had was um, was down here in Bend. It's actually the reason that uh, my wife and I moved here just a couple weeks after we got married, so I could get a job at the Shoots Brewery and. Um, I spent, um, I think it was about 
15, 16 years um, with the shoots through a lot of rapid growth and had a lot of really good educational experiences. And, and, um, but I guess it all kind of comes back to the fact that uh, what I really like about the, the idea of brewing and beer is this, this historical tie that it just really goes way, it goes so far back in our human history that we don't really even know. We, you know, we make assumptions and you've got archaeologists digging things up and saying, you know, oh my gosh, you know, they were making beer 10,000 years ago. And, but we don't have this direct link to what brewers in the old days were doing or their processes. And um, it struck me when um, I, I had to leave Deschutes mainly because, um, you know, the kind of the, what happens to most uh, any skilled profession, it seems like, is you, you work your way up in ranks and you learn and all this stuff there is to know about your trade. And then you get to a point and there's nowhere left to go except to become a manager, you know. And, and so at that point, um, I was being asked to step away from, from brewing and to, um, you know, um, into a different role. And, you know, I, I do remember the original question you asked, and this is why it's such a challenge for me to, to talk to people about this is because this is, this is where I go. And, um, you know, the beer takes forever. And a lot of times that's how my thought process goes. But when, when I left that, uh, that environment, um, I was struck by the fact that my wife and I had bought this piece of property um, and we didn't want to lose it. In fact, I promised her that, that I would, stay working at the shoots brewery until the day I died. So we could maintain the mortgage. <laughs> and then, you know, a few years later I up and quit. Um, and so at the, I had this unique opportunity to um, do a very old world thing where I, I tied this piece of land to this little business, to the brewery. Um, and the thought process was, well, you know, if, if the brewery succeeds then we, we get to stay here and um, I could take inspiration from, um, the old world creative minded brewers who are using, you know, the things around them, the things that they had access to and their creative minds to create something that, um, was unique and different. And, um, specifically, you know, when we're talking about old world beer and stuff is, is, is prior to the discovery of microorganisms when, um, a lot of the, all these fermented foods and beverages that there is this element of magic because people didn't know there were these little microorganisms in the air that you know transformed their raw materials into these uh these things that people ate and drank um and so kind of with that in mind you know we we went into this willingly like saying you know like in in contemporary terms we were purposely infecting our beer by not um creating a laboratory um uh, sanitized environment and then inoculating it with a very specific organism and then maintaining, a you know, this, uh, chemically sanitized area to allow that one organism to, uh, survive without any competition, you know? So we're, we're, you know, using local malt and local hops. And then, you know, from the brewery property, we're using everything from the black currants that grow down by the Creek to, various tree parts to the water that's, that's coming up from our aquifer. Um, and then with our unique little brewing process, we, um, we have all, we have all this tons and tons of house character, but the, I think the specific thing that what you're talking about is the, um, the acidity that, that comes from this type of, uh, fermentation, right? So, um, bacteria and wild yeast, which are, um, prevalent, prevalent pretty much anywhere, um, are the things that in most modern day contemporary beers, uh, that's what, what brewers are trying to avoid. You know, um, they balance, uh, the malt profile with hop bitterness. So you kind of have the, the malt opposing the hops and that's where the balance for, um, you know, uh, most of the beers on the on market today are. And that's great. I, I love, I love all those beers and I drink, drink plenty of them, but, um, for me, the uh, the idea of creating this very unique product um, also kind of coincides with um, some very idealistic um, challenges, you know, like um, the fact that we're living on this property. Uh, we're also stewards of it, right? And so we have this brewery, and we know that breweries produce um, 
uh, organic and inorganic wastes. And so we don't use any contact sanitizers. You know, we use hot water to uh, to clean things and, and to prepare things for, for our beers and all that. But um, I didn't want to be um, using a whole bunch of chemicals, which, you know, um, contemporary brewing, uh, they use a lot of chemicals. All right, so let's, uh, let's stop right there, know. Paul, and talk about that, because I think so many people don't even, you said that it's it's kind of obvious what modern day breweries are generally doing, but I don't think it is obvious to most people. So can we slow down and maybe you could tell me, like break it down, how does your process differ from what is actually happening at a conventional brewery or even a microbrewery? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think really it comes down to um, food production. You know, the things that we... Um, that we buy and that we eat, you know, they're marketed certain ways. And um, we often don't know exactly how they get into their packagings. And, um, you know, like even like the organic milk and uh, that we buy, you know, I sometimes wonder if we really went back, you know, it doesn't look exactly like the cow on the farm eating the grass the way that, you know what I mean? It's like, uh, that's, that's kind of this thing that I, I got to, you know, and breweries uh, are, um, probably nowhere I, I i you know i can't speak from um any sort of real knowledge as far as specific food production but my time in the brewing world kind of gave me this clue on how you know um we prepare food in large amounts for us to take to market and to to, to bring home you know and um in breweries specifically just the um the uh organic waste that's produced in, you know, so that's all like uh, proteins and complex carbohydrates, um, natural occurring um, uh, waste. They call it like in, 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 in wastewater terms, it's called a BODs or the biological oxygen demand it takes to break these things down. Um, large breweries rely on city um, wastewater treatment facilities to handle this waste and it can be it can become quite a quite a thing you know like each city especially bend um, with the amount of breweries we have it's uh, it's this ongoing debate right I mean we as a community want to have these breweries here they're good um, on a whole number of levels uh, financially economically um, you know lifestyle all those kind of things but there is a, a cost to dealing with the waste products. So you're actually you're actually talking about what the what's left over after the brewing process. Yes, and so I mean I guess I'm just trying to break it down. There's there's kind of there's kind of two things really. There's the the natural occurring waste which is like uh particles from the grain or the hops, you know, and it's just a separation thing during the brewing process and um the uh this organic material often gets dumped into the city sewers uh, where communities deal with it, which I think can be a good trade-off. The question is when you have a brewery that is, is getting larger and larger and larger um, and, you know, maybe it's selling most of its product outside the city, um, but it's using a whole bunch of water and um, city uh, utilities to deal with that, you know, that's a, to me that's something that we as communities should be talking about when it comes to these kind of food factories, whether they're making beer, bread, or whatever. We were talking about how your process differs from what most beer makers out there are doing. And you were talking about the waste stream that happens as a result of of most breweries' processes, which actually I hadn't even thought about before, which is crazy because I I consider the environmental aspect of everything. Um, But I think the beer culture is so associated with outdoors lifestyle and people who are really interested in environmental issues to begin with i I, that just kind of blew my mind i hadn't really thought about that yeah and you know like i i do want to um be careful that i don't come across sounding like i'm um throwing rocks at glass houses kind of a thing you know it's uh i i it's um this is all based on the fact that i was fortunate enough to be in a position to um, start my own business, my own brewery, and uh, I was really, really determined to make it work in a way that represented how I want the world to look and work. It it, it isn't meant to be um, a way to tell people that they're doing it wrong. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, I, I sometimes feel that when I start talking about this stuff, um, it it can come off sounding um, like I'm I'm getting preachy and. Uh, 
it's it's stuff I'm concerned about. It's stuff that I don't really, other than than doing my own thing and, and presenting it the way that I do, I don't really know how else to address it. I um, and specifically to 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 get back to what I was talking about had to, has to do with um, um, it's basically the industrialization of our brewery. So like earlier you mentioned um, the difference between um, microbreweries and say Budweiser. Um, and that's very true that they're, they're, the main difference between the two things that you're talking about is just a physical uh, scale. The size of, of, say, a large brewery such as Budweiser it produces far more waste and uses far more water than, than um, your microbrewery, of course. Um, but as far as, you know, uh, this kind of ties into um, another thing that, um, that I'm – <laughs> I, I'm trying to work with and deal with is is this just the term craft, right? And so we've got um, this word that is is thrown around in our brewing industry a lot, um, and I'm not actually sure what it means, other than maybe using you know. It, to me, it seems that we end up getting a particular beer style out of out of that word. It, you know, it's not lager; it's more of a hoppy um, IPA or something like that because you can still have breweries that produce craft beer that are just as automated and just as large as other breweries that, that may not be considered craft. Um, and so to kind of tie that into my brewery is uh, when I was committing myself to do this pro- project, um, I wanted to use the least amount of chemicals as I possibly could. Um, and where, what that transitions into is for me to make um, – Another term I'm not super <laughs> super stoked on is sour beer. Uh, that seems to be the general umbrella term that uh, most people understand. Um, but we make beer that is um, is tart uh, as opposed to bitter, um, and that comes from the microorganisms um, and the wild yeast that are present in our our air around here. They're they're naturally occurring microorganisms that are we allow to. Um, uh, come into our process, you know, that's where we're getting some of our, um, house character, some of our, uh, you know, the term that the, the wine folks use is terroir, um, because they, they, this is, this is where they're from. And, um, but that's like I was saying, that's, um, and why your experience the way that it was is it's not a, a typical, um, flavor profile that you find in, in beer today. You know, we're, we're kind of in this, in this realm now where people will, uh, when they think beer, it's it's you know it's uh, like like lager, like our uh, um, post-prohibition lagers that are prevalent all around the world, or for you know microbrewing um, craft beer world is is more complex beer that has a more pronounced bitterness or malt character. Um, or super nowadays, hoppy. You know, we are. Yeah, yeah, totally more more hoppy. You know, and if that that was another thing I was really interested in is looking back through history, you know, prior to like the 15, 1600s, hops weren't used in, in beer manufacturing. In fact, when the hops started to become prevalent, um, the German um, uh, king or something like that, it was basically a big challenge. It was like they, they tried to outlaw brewing with hops, you know, it's, it's always cracks me up. Um, but um just kind of getting back to the, the chemical thing is the, the, one of the reasons that our beer tastes the way it does is because I made a commitment that had really nothing to do with the end result beer that I was making. It had to do with how I wanted to um, run my little company and kind of like the ideals and the, um, uh, the, the practices that I want to have. I wanted them to be uh, something that I, I wasn't um, working against all the time. I mean, just uh, – the fact that this brewery is on this piece of land and we have to treat the waste ourselves and with just kind of the general, I want to be doing what's right for the earth kind of thing. Um, Cause breweries do, they just use a lot, a lot, a lot of water. And they also use a lot, a lot, a lot of chemicals. Um, and not the, the, you know, the water goes into the beer, but it's also used for the cleaning and rinsing these chemicals. Um, you know, so those those are a couple things, and then there's a, a third component. If you really want to dork out on this stuff, is, oh, I uh, do. Okay, there's a, there's what another term that I call processing aids, um, and so in the brewing world, there are these things that uh, that you don't have to put on the beer labels. 
that uh, that brewers will use to um, accelerate the pace of the beer as it moves through the brewery so you can make beer faster. Um, and some of it isn't, you know, and this is really all, uh, you know, I drew a line in the sand for myself and, you know, I constantly have to kind of, you know, adjust where it is. But uh, things like uh, there's this seaweed derivative that brewers will throw into um, the boil kettle to help coagulate all the proteins um, and help them settle out um, before they, they add their yeast to it. Um, and so, uh, you know, this is something that doesn't actually end up, supposedly doesn't actually end up in your beer that you drink. It's supposed to settle everything out, but it's, it's something that helps accelerate the beer through the brewery. There's uh, mineral salts, you know, mined mineral salts that brewers will use to adjust pHs and stuff, and, um, you know, artificial CO2 that gets bubbled into the beer, or even glycol, you know, like this uh, temperature control of tanks where it can help... Uh, crash yeast out of uh, uh, out of suspension quicker so you can clarify your beer quicker and move your beer through the brewery quicker um, and if there's a whole bunch of if there's brewers listening to this they're like oh my gosh Arnie you're you're really going a little far here and honestly it's it is true I I, I tried to take this as far as I could um, and that's uh, one reason our beer tastes the way it does it's one reason our beer takes almost two years to 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 make you know like from from the day we started to the day we can uh, sell it in a bottle, um, but I think most importantly for me, it's uh, it's a it's a unique way to kind of look at how our food, your general food practices, work or don't work, um, and it's kind of also this neat little tie to history. You know, people used to do a lot of things without the the um, you know the aids, whether they be technological or um, biological or whatever you know that we've we've come up with um brewers used to be able to uh to make really darn good beer without a lot of the uh um the crutches that we 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 have today yeah well it's so interesting because i I know you mentioned that some brewers listening to this might think you're getting too intense but i see such a fascinating parallel here because you're talking about all these agents you're adding and it's very similar to what's happening in factory farming. I mean, you have to add the antibiotics so that the animals fatten up. You're adding, you know, human growth hormone. And it's the same kind of thing, which is, like you said, this industrialization of this process. And so, yeah, I, I'm so fascinated by that. And I was wondering, can we can you talk more about the history aspect of it? Because it sounds like you've intensely thought about this. And I'm wondering about what your uh, your process was like in researching what you wanted to do. Um well, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, um, so I guess the, the biggest thing for at least being an American brewer, like one of the reasons I was attracted during the first place, like I was saying, it's just that this intense history um, that we don't really have a connection with. Well, it even gets uh, compounded as an American brewer because of prohibition, right? So um, when we go to Europe, we go to Belgium, you go to these kind of these uh, historically uh, beer-centric places of the world, they've got kind of a direct connection to at least the recent past, the recent history of brewing. You know, like, I mean, Germany talks about Rheinheitsgebot that was in 1516, and you go to Belgium, and some of the ways that they make beer is the way that it was made a long time ago. You know, I mean, we go to Cantillon, it's just like, wow, you know. Um, unfortunately for us here in America, we had prohibition. You know, and it's like uh, any good brewer will tell you, prior to Prohibition, there were thousands of little breweries all across the country, um, and all of them were making uh, relatively local beers, you know, small breweries making beer with the ingredients. You know, very kind of more how what I would think of now as like a European model, you know. Um, and then Prohibition happened, and of course, most, if not all, these small breweries couldn't afford to stay functioning through that time. And the only ones that, uh, that were, were the, uh, the larger ones that had money, you know, like, um, cores turned to making ceramics and, um, you know, so basically, so these large breweries were the ones that came out. Um, and so at that point they didn't have any competition from any smaller breweries and, you know, over the next few decades, they just got ginormous. Right. And, kind of crazy because they all ended up making the same products and uh you know and then in the 80s we had our little craft brewery revolution and people were like discovering these beer styles that uh europeans had had always (laughs) always been drinking um 
And what I found is really interesting with that is, you know, from that crap ring revolution, instead of, uh, I mean, I guess it's just taken a while, but we grew these giant crap breweries out of that, you know, that were basically akin to the large regional breweries that, uh, that we kind of were turning our noses up at. There's, you know, there's been a lot of talk lately about, uh, you know, these, the growth numbers for some of these large breweries. Um, they've kind of gotten flat over the last year, year and a half. Interestingly enough, though, where their um, their our counterparts of smaller breweries have continued to grow, um, which is uh, something that I'm pretty excited about because I think the uh, the grocery store um, the grocery store beer world I think is going to be undergoing some changes here. But I mean, you know, I feel like I'm getting off topic. You're not. There's so many tangents we could go off on. No, we, I mean, we were talking about the history, but really, like, it's interesting because you're talking about this resurgence of craft breweries, but yet they they keep drifting toward this giant industrialized model. And I'm just wondering why you think that's happening and why don't why aren't more people doing what you're doing? Well, I guess what I'm doing, I think people aren't doing what I'm doing for a number of reasons. I think it's, um, it's very risky. Um, it's not very easy and there's not much money in it. (laughs) You know, I think that's, (laughs) that's probably why our business model is working where it is, but, um, you know, we're, we're paying our employees as well as we can, which is higher than, you know, industry standard. Um, we're intent on staying small, um, but with our bottle prices being so high, even say if I wanted, say if I was just like a uh, complete capitalist about this, um, I don't think I could ramp up production because all of a sudden this product that's um, looked at as being specialty and we have it once in a while as a celebration and all of a sudden it's available everywhere and maybe the prices slightly come down. It just, I just don't think it would be a very good I don't. I just don't see that working very well. Um, in, you know, the the business model that I see that I want to see work well are these small, very localized breweries that are um, more like a, you know a, a pub or a brewery in a specific place that um, uh, has a specific customer and and uh, and a niche in a town. You know, like because and this is kind of along the lines of where things were before prohibition wiped all these breweries out. Um, and to answer your question, as far as like the ones that are getting bigger and bigger, yeah, I think it's, um, there's a, um, there's an interesting thing that happens when you grow a industrial brewery. And I don't know if this is the same with other food productions, but I, I would imagine it probably is, is that there ends up being a sweet spot with um, industrial processes where you can, um, produce a lot of um, uh, a lot of your product, and you can make a decent profit. Um, but then beyond that point, you start um, losing. You're not able to make as much money with each um, with with each volume of whatever you're making. So in order to stay on that same trajectory, you need to make more and more and more and more and more consistently. You know, so. Um, I've, that's one of these things you hear people say stuff like, well, you know, if you're not growing, you're dead. Um, and, you know, you look at Anchor Steam and they figured out a way to stay the same size, uh, which I've always admired. Um, and I kind of along those lines of what I was talking about with that, you know, the, the, the early to mid-90s Red Hook Pyramid full sale thing that went down. Um, it's kind of surprising to me to see that some of our regional craft breweries are, are entering that same exact pattern again, right? We're seeing people everywhere, every supermarket, they're all post off, um, and everybody's trying to make more and more beer and trying to sell more and more beer. And it's just, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not entirely sure why. Yeah, well, it's interesting, too, because we haven't even really talked about how specifically you make your beers, which I wanted, I want to talk about because I want the audience to have a chance to really understand truly what you're doing. But there's also this element too of what you're doing is so unpredictable. Is that right? I mean, you started off by talking about yeah. this highly controlled environment that you have to have to have a industrial level brewery, even if that's a small industrial brewery. And so, um, yeah, I mean, is that description right? Can you is is the unpredictability of it also a factor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's a lot of the uh, 
um, it's yeah, it's it's a huge factor, and I I think that I'm I'm maybe becoming a little numb to it because you know it's just such our day to day, but. Yeah. In the last, you know, so we first started putting beer out at the end of 2012, and I would say just maybe in the tail end of 2017 was the first time that we, that I felt that we had enough beer where we could kind of be, we started to, not micromanage, but we started to be able to, um, we used to be, we started to be able to take our, our time with choosing which beer we're going to package. Like it, it, it takes our beer, you know, quite a while to be made in the first place. But for those first years, it was, we had, we had beer that was ready. Um, and that was the beer that we had to go with because we didn't have any other options. You know, we, we didn't make very much. Um, we didn't make, we didn't make very much volume. Uh, but in order to keep the business moving, you know, I didn't have any leeway. It was like, okay, this is a beer. We got to go with it. Let's go. And did you have, um, sorry to interrupt you, but did you have any disasters? Like you just like had thrown in a bunch of really pine lucky, needles and like, you know? yeah. So tell me what happened. I got, I got, well, I got really lucky. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I like to attribute it to the fact that I'm a very detail oriented person. Um, and I also spent a large part of, you know, my brewing career working as a brewer. And so I've, I've, I've had my head, wrapped around this and um I was totally invested you know like I mean it was like with this brewery it was like all or nothing I was uh and it was all me I didn't have any employees at the beginning and so I was hyper focused and so I think that along with um time you know I think time has become this huge ally of ours um where I think other pr- people other business models work against the time thing you know um where, you know, time just does amazing things, especially in the type of process that we use. It just matures the beer and, and things that, uh, um, let's just say that time is, is equal to the, uh, the quality of the raw materials we put in there. It's another, it's another ingredient. While we're talking about the aging process, maybe can you just talk about how you age your beer? Because I think it's so interesting. Sure. Yeah. So, um, what we'll do is we will, uh, you know, we mash our, our grain uh, in the evening and let that rest overnight. And so that process takes us, um, you know, it takes about 12 hours or something. And in most breweries, you'll see that happen in about an hour. Um, and then, you know, the next stage is we'll, um, we uh, run the wort, we separate the wort, you know, the, the sugary liquid that's been created from the um, carbohydrates and the malt into our, our copper kettle where we uh, will boil it and we boil it. Um, depending on the beer, we use the, uh, the boil time um, as another process control, like a ingredient, so to speak, uh, because the longer we boil it, the more caramelization we get in there. So we can kind of um, uh, direct the beer to different places just based on how long we boil it. And that's also where we add the hops. Um, and then, uh, that process takes anywhere from two to six hours. Um, you know, in typical breweries, that's like an hour to hour and a half. Um, and from there, most breweries will run their wort through a uh, whirlpool or something or and right out to the fermenter where they add yeast, and we'll run our wort um, and let it sit overnight to allow the uh, natural settling of these uh, proteins uh, to occur. Um, and the following day, we will run it into our open fermenters. Uh, all of our fermenters are wood. We have one made of dug fur, and the rest are all um, converted large barrels with the heads removed. Um, and so that's where the uh, native microorganisms from this area come into our, our beer. Uh, and that fermentation, you know, the, the open part of the fermentation takes a better part of a week. Um, but they're in those tanks for say three, three-ish, three to four weeks, almost a month. Um, and from that point, we will rack the beer from the fermenters into uh, aging barrels. Um, and depending on the beer that we're making, kind of dictates what barrel it goes into. Some of our beers have fresh wine barrels that they go into, or spirit barrels. Um, some of our beer uh, goes into what we call second use or brewery brewery barrels, ones that we've we've used in the past that don't have any wine characteristics. Um, so the barrels kind of uh, the barrel is another raw material for the uh, flavor profile. Um, 
And then we drive, I, I load the barrels on the back of our, our 1972 International Flatbed. Nice. <laughs> Wood. Very, yeah, he's very, uh, he's like our team mascot. Um, and so uh, once or twice a week, I'll take barrels down the hill to our tasting room. Um, our barrel cellar and tasting room are in town, and then it's about 5,000 square feet, where our, our brewery is very small. It's only about 600, 700 square feet. Um, so we'll move the, bar- the barrels down to our barrel aging facility, um, and they'll, they'll sit in the barrels for um, a, mi- a minimum of a year, and uh, most likely about a year and a half. And um, during that time, we'll uh, top the barrels off. Uh, we live in a very arid environment, um, and so we top the barrels off because um, over the course of uh, just a few months, the, uh, we, can, we can lose a certain volume of, of beer. You know, they call it the angel share or the eulage out, out through the, the pores of the wood just by evaporation. Um, and then we can see the staves at the very top. They shrink if they're not in contact with any liquid. And then all of a sudden you can get air penetrating the barrels, and that's not a good thing because oxygen in presence of uh, acetobacter creates acetic acid, which is vinegar. Um, and so, you know, that is something we're trying to avoid. So some sour beer brewers won't top their barrels. And I could see doing that if you were in a more human environment where we didn't have to deal with this, but we top our barrels off and it allows us to re-inoculate, uh, the beer with, uh, with little bits of our yeast during that year, year and a half worth of aging. And I think it helps with maturing it. So just to let everyone know, this is from spring water, from your own spring on your property, right? That you're topping this off with? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So that's super cool. Well, I mean, well, 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 the beer is made with that water. When we, when we top the barrels off, we'll use um, actively fermenting beer. Oh, got it. Okay. Shows how much I because don't know that about way the process. We're, we're, yeah. Yeah. No. And it's it's yeah. It's it's um, basically my process is a, a conglomeration of uh, a bunch of things that um, other brewers and winemakers um, and you know acetic uh, or vinegar producers in, in Italy, you know, like any, any time I see something that is, um, that makes sense for our, our, our process, I, I borrow it or, or steal it, you know, uh, not many of these things here are original, but I think the original aspect is the cobbling of all these different things together. Um, and right. so the la- the last step is, uh, is for us to put the beer into the bottle and so what we'll do is we'll transfer the beer out of the barrels. Some of the beer goes onto dry hops or to onto uh, tree needles prior to packaging. And so that we'll make sure that happens for about a month or two months prior to packaging. Sorry, did so you say uh, tree needles? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay, don't skip over we make, that. <laughs> yeah, we, we, make, um, uh, we make certain beers with uh, white fur, some with, one with spruce. And uh, we've experimented with Ponderosa as well. Um, and that's, I mean, as a little tangent, um, there's a, a very um, deep, there's deep brewing roots up in Scandinavia. Um, and it wasn't really a, a beer uh, world that I was very familiar with before I started this project. But once um, I started my brewery, and uh, one of the people initially, when I first told them that I was doing with it, they would, they would kind of be like, oh, you're making farmhouse beers. And I would always be kind of taken back. Well, no, we're up in the woods and there's no, I'm, we're not making farmhouse beers. Um, and so when I learned about the brewers in Scandinavia and some of the processes that they would um, use to make beer, uh, one of them is the overnight mashing, which we do. Uh, but another one is this uh, um, way that they would separate their mash, uh, the wort from their, their grain. Uh, they would hollow out a tree and, and fill the bottom of it with, uh, they would use a juniper twigs and then pour the mash on top of it. And all those juniper twigs would hold back all the solids, you know, the, the grain particles, and then they would collect the, uh, the liquid running out of this trough that made out of a tree trunk. Um, and then they'd ferment their beer. And so it was like this real practical solution to a problem. But the, that solution implemented a heck of a lot of character into their beer, right? Um, and that's, that's really what, what I'm trying to do here is, is, you know, we all know, I mean, all of us brewers know the steps on how you get, how you make beer from 
grain. Um, and then, so for me, if, if we can have this unique process that uses equipment that we make ourselves um, or from, uh, you know, these things that grow on brewery property, you know, we've got um, pine and fir trees, um, we will affect our beer in ways that you couldn't otherwise. And so it's grown into this thing that where now we've got two beers that we make um, routinely, which are flavored with, uh, with tree needles. Um, yeah, it's it, and so it, it, it kind of came from this Scandinavian um, inspiration. Yeah, that's so cool. And I've I have tasted the spruce, and it is amazing. And it's almost like I I've also had your spruce beer that we brought back to LA, but it doesn't taste the same when you're drinking it in LA versus Bend. Like there's something about being <laughs> nice. in Bend and you're experiencing. It sounds so cliche, but it's true. Like you're experiencing your local environment through this beer. That's it's just amazing. Um, well, thank you. No, we've got an ale club member who I was just hanging. We, so we have this ale club. Uh, we have about 250 people in this, which, you know, they they kind of get first rights to all of our beers, and we save them a case of our, our most unique beers throughout the year. And um, we just had this our first beer dinner with a, um, a local company, um, Sunny Yoga Kitchen. And so we we just had this, this event, and he was uh, – he had brought a friend of his who had never had our beer and we were standing there talking. He's just, he was telling him, he's like, I like to say that it's like central organ in a glass, you know, it's like, um, and that's kind of what makes, it just makes me feel really good because that was the intention, you know? So like all the, the beer styles that we, we know and discuss at these beer judging competitions, they all started in a place, um, with a brewer or a set of brewers who had a, a very limited supply of raw materials and they had their own, unique way of making beer from grain and they were able to make something um that worked with with those limitations you know and they worked so well that it became this this beer style where now other people are trying to make it but it really all stemmed from the fact that you know they they had certain limitations and that's something that i really try to bring to this project is you know we aren't going to be the uh, the company that can go out and buy whatever piece of equipment we want, or we we aren't going to have enough money where we can just do anything we want at any time with our with our beer. And so, how do we turn that into a positive? And uh, the way that I'm trying to do it is like we really have to engage this creative brewer's brain, you know. And it's not the 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 creative brewer brain that goes through a, a catalog and and looks for interesting ingredients or malts from all over the world. It's how do we take these things that we have that no one else has and turn it into something really good, you know? And, and I think that in itself is something that isn't super prevalent in the brewing world or, <laughs> I mean, maybe in a lot of, a lot of things. It's, um, we all seem to like to define outcomes before we even start down um, the path to getting to where we're going and, one of the, the most exciting and liberating things about this project with this brewery is that I had, um, I had a, a lot of confidence in my skills as a brewer, and I knew that if we did things right, the beer would be good, but I didn't know what the beer would taste like. And so by utilizing these idealistic principles and then uh, having these local uh, farmers supply me with some awesome raw materials – um, and then creating this little process and just, you know, treating it with care. We ended up with some really cool, unique beer that uh, it just, I don't know, it's its one of these things that um, it's very, uh, I, it just is uh, reassuring, I guess is the word, as far as like going through life and, and believing in something uh, and not not having to rely on someone else or a lot of money. It just has been a... Um, it's been such a such a humbling and liberating experience. It's really, really been cool. Yeah, I, I love what you're doing, Paul. And I wish I could talk to you forever, but we don't have a lot of time left. So I just have a couple of questions for you uh, along those lines. So where do you envision this going? Then? I mean, are you, are you going to sell to a big corporation? <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, you know, I, I joke about that with people, too, because it's like um, – I really doubt that any any corporation that that has a, a good controller or financial um, person would look at my business model and be like, "This isn't a very smart purchase." Um, but you know, I mean, yeah, if somebody decided that they wanted to buy us, I, I mean, I don't, I have no idea. You know, I'd have to determine that when it when it comes. But it, I think 
the the people that we serve right now, our customers would um, know that, what, that something's going on because it's you know the ale apothecary. The reason it's called that is that I my dad, grandpa, and great grandpa were all um, druggists, uh, and so there's this very I've, I've tied so many things personally into this business that I think trying to sell it to someone else or, or grow it beyond where it involves me is uh, it probably wouldn't work. But you know. Who's to say? Who's to say what the future may bring? Um, what I know right now is that uh, we opened our tasting room last May. Um, I hired on um, Hans, who is our my third um, brewer slash sellerman, um, and I don't expect to hire any more. You know, like we're it, it feels like a really good size where we're at. Um, we're trying to get to the point now where. Uh, we kind of can control our ins and outs a little bit because our, our barrel cellar is getting completely packed. Um, but we, you know, we're, we, since day one, I've, I've brewed more than I, let's see, brewed more than I sell it. How do I say this? We're, we're making way more beer than we're selling because we want to get to a point where we can level that off. But it's hard to exactly know when that time will be. And I think we're kind of getting close to giving that a try um, because I don't intend to, to just keep growing it. It's, um, um, but we're going into new markets and uh, that's, that's exciting. Um, yeah, it's, it's really hard to know my, my gut instinct. And uh, that was doable up until this year. You know, I um, knock on wood that we haven't ever run into an issue where we couldn't pay anybody. But uh, when I finally, when we finally sat down and started really needling in on, on the expenses and, and what we were bringing in, I was kind of astonished because I, I, if <laughs> I would have guessed the numbers would have been lower, you know, the amount that we're, we're selling and, and, um, and the amount that we're spending and selling every month were, were larger than I had thought. Um, so that was kind of like, Oh yeah, we should probably, we need to we need to know what these yep. numbers are if we want this to last. Uh, right, so it can, so, can continue. Yeah, yeah. Because we're having a good time. You know, we just built a, a, a um, we just built a, a proper brew house onto our brewery up here, um, and so we're trying to just get everything to be set up so we can maintain it and, and run this as time goes on. So exciting! And so for people who are listening right now, because there, I have listeners all over the world. What should they do if they can't, you know, obviously they can't drink ale apothecary wherever they are. Um, what advice do you have for them for looking for brewers who are doing what you're doing or maybe even getting into brewing themselves? Yeah, you know, that I guess that would be uh, number one. It, it does take a little more commitment because obviously if you want to if you want to drink um, beer similar to ours, you know, you're going to be waiting a very long time as you're waiting for to mature and all that. Um, but it is, you know, it's it's a... Uh, it's a, this type of beer is becoming more prevalent. I don't think it's ever going to be like the IPA. I don't think it's going to be something that the masses are just going to, you know, can't get enough of. But brewers enjoy this element because it is has got this historical component. Um, it takes a lot of patience. You get to work with wood. So there are more breweries that are engaging in making these kind of beers. And so um, I would say just is look around because there there's definitely going to be someone nearby. Um, however, you know, um, just kind of like when you went to, uh, when those, um, when the pubs were first coming out in the nineties, um, you go in and the, and the beer was usually not so great. Um, there, there's, there's probably more sour beer out there that is, is, I don't know how to say this in a nice way. It's okay. There, I tasted some of it. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like when you hear sour beer, it's, um, sometimes it's very accurate and, uh, I like to think our beer is balanced. Um, and, um, yeah, there, there is a company called Tavour, um, and I don't know what, how far they ship, but, uh, they occasionally get some of our beer, um, and can do mail order. Oh, okay. Good to know. And do you, do you even drink any other beer than your own? Oh yes. Oh gosh. Of course. I can't afford to just drink my beer all the time. <laughs> um, by the way, your uh, yeah, beer is yeah, very affordable, know, like I should got... say. I just want to say, you know, when you compare it to, like, say, a bottle of wine and the amount of value you're getting for the amount of, like, hard work and love that went into the beer you're making, it, I mean, it's it's not that crazy. I, I don't think it is. No, I, I agree. I totally agree. It's, I just get you, you know, I think 
I think I'm just used to dealing with uh, there's a uh, a component of the beer consumer class that just ties beer to the proletariat masses. And uh, there's just, you know, there's always that person that's like, well, I don't care how good the beer is, I'm not going to spend over X for it. And that mindset is one that I, I, you know, and I need to just get over it because honestly, we never see those, we don't, we don't hear that that often. It's just, uh, um, it's just one of those things, you know, it's like, uh, I just was crazy when we, when we started this business and, and, and thinking that we were going to be selling $30, $35, $40 a bottle, um, it's just been, it's just been very interesting, you know, cause the, I agree. I, and I, the, the perspective that you bring is the same one that we get from most all of our customers, you know, and, um, it, it makes me happy. It's just, there's, there's another element to that, you know, and generally most of that happens online. Um, probably not surprisingly so. Yeah. And I will say just to tie this into the whole industrialized food thing, when you drink your beer, you want to drink less of it because it's so good. I mean, I don't mean that like, I could probably drink three bottles of your beer because it's so good, but I just mean you really savor it. You appreciate it in a way because it is so special. It's not just like downing, you know, whatever cheap lager that's at happy hour. It's it's just a different experience. And, um, you know, I just so admire what you're doing, Paul. This has been so much fun. Thanks a lot, Jennifer. No, I really appreciate it. And it was, uh, yeah, I really appreciate you uh, freeforming the um the questions. I haven't been able to ramble like that in a while. That was fun. I'm glad. I, hopefully it felt a little therapeutic. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Great. Good. So where, Paul, where can people follow you? Are you on social media? Uh, yeah, I've got um, our brewery on Instagram, the Ale Apothecary. Um, and then I also have um, on our website, which is thealeapothecary.com, I've got a blog on there that I haven't been updating as much as I should, but um, it's got a lot of good reading material on it. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Paul, for your time today. And I can't wait to see you the next time we're up in Bend. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher Radio so you don't miss the next one. And please leave us a rating and review. If you want to talk more about this episode or have an idea for a future show, head over to my Instagram page. That's at Jennifer Grayson one. As with every episode, the resources and links for this show are available at jennifergrayson.com, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, which comes out once a month. Our theme music is by composer Paul Damian Hogan. That's it for me, and I'll see you next Monday with a new episode.